Well, good morning. Let's find our seats and open our Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word, for your Holy Spirit, who brings to our remembrance the things that the Lord Jesus commanded, helps us to understand your word, helps us to know how to put it into practice. And I pray today that as we consider um, the first half of this chapter, that we would be impacted by the Apostle Paul, how he leads by example, how he does those things that he encourages others to do, and that we would be moved, that we would act the same, that we would be grateful, that we would be thankful people, because we have been redeemed, we've been rescued. And so help us to see you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we went over the introduction for this book and how Paul is writing to a congregation that he has never personally met. This church was started, <coughs> excuse me, by Epaphras and uh, a man who was likely led to Christ by Paul during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Uh, Epaphras was from Colossae and um, he is the one who carried the gospel there, who acted as the pastor there for at least a time, as he was the one who was also discipling people there. And there's an issue. They've, they've got some trouble in River City, which actually is appropriate since Colossae is on the Little Meander River. And Epaphras goes to Rome to track down Paul to get some help to get some guidance, and Paul, in return, writes this letter. Now, keep in mind that Colossians and Philemon are basically sister letters. Philemon is written to a man, Philemon, who is, lives in Colossae. In fact, the Colossian church may, in fact, meet in Philemon's home. And so these books were carried at the same time, as was almost certainly the book of Ephesus, as Tychicus was carrying um, all three. And so let's read the first part of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope, <coughs> excuse me, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a pretty 
standard Pauline salutation. Greek letters in that day started off with who was writing and who it was being written to. And so Paul immediately starts off, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now he's identifying himself as an apostle. Why? Why would he do that to this church? Okay, okay so he's establishing credibility because they don't know him. They know of him, but they don't know him personally. And so he's an apostle, and Timothy is with him. Timothy has not yet gone to Ephesus. And so they're there, and it's written to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, the idea here of saints and faithful brethren, that's the same people. So it's not like there's two different groups where you've got saints and then you've got those people who are faithful. This is, this is two ways of describing the same people. And then grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace is every one of Paul's letters. They're all opened that way. Grace is actually the word from which the standard greeting in Greek is derived. But it has a, more, it has a deeper meaning because it's talking about uh, God's favor and God's power. And so pretty standard salutation. Now things get going in verse 3. And again, we talked about this last week, but it's worth considering again. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul is a thankful man. He is a grateful man. And keep in mind, where is Paul when he is writing this letter? He's in prison, and yet he is thankful. He is grateful. We're going to see that throughout this letter, this idea of gratitude, we're going to run into it, in fact, later in this chapter. And so again, we're grateful to God because we've heard about you. Again, he's not been there, and so he's going off of what Epaphras has told him. And Epaphras hasn't just told him there's a problem. He's also passed along the things that are going well in Colossae. And so... Paul, what have you heard? Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so here we have this triad. And again, this is very Paul. Faith, love, hope. Now, where do we run into those three tied together in Paul's writings? 1 Corinthians 13, right now by these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You'll also find them in Ephesians 1, 15 to 18, and you will find them in 1 Thess 1, 3. And in, in fact, all three of them are in the same verse there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You'll run into faith and love together in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, 1 Timothy 1, 5, and Philemon 5. Now, these three are tied together. Now, uh, Norman Geisler had a couple of very succinct statements that were helpful. He says that faith looks upward to Christ, love looks, looks outward to others, and hope looks forward with anticipation. And then he, he goes back, goes along, faith rests on the work of Christ, love works in the present, hope anticipates the future, hope looks forward to the future. Now, think about faith for a moment. What is one of the things that God has given us to help build faith? What helps to build your faith? Pardon me? 
Reading the Bible, what specifically? Okay, the Gospels. We're going to talk about this in the main service next week. One of the things that God gives in his word is history. He demonstrates the Bible is full of examples of how God has been faithful in the past. And the idea is, is that because we know that God has been faithful in the past, then what can we expect? He's going to be faithful today, and he's going to be faithful in the future, right? He's trustworthy. He is always faithful. And so the idea here is that faith, in addition to looking up, faith also is based on looking back. The, first, the Old Testament is full of examples. In fact, if you consider the, uh, the festivals, what were the festivals of Israel? Come on, name one. Passover. What's Passover? Passover is a commemoration. It is a memorial of God's deliverance from Egypt, right? The, and the, the Passover lamb uh, being shed, so when they put the blood on the doorpost, the death angel passed over that home, and yet he struck every home of those in Egypt. So the Passover is a memorial. It is to remember. This is what God did back here. Name another one. Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles. What's that about? Yeah. It's, in fact, what did, what did the children of Israel do? during the Feast of Booths. Yeah, they went out, they cut up some limbs and branches, they brought them back, and they built a shelter. They built a small tabernacle. And they lived in it for a week because it's, remember, it's reminding them of God's faithfulness to them when they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years and their shoes didn't wear out and they had something to eat every day. And they had adequate water. And again, remember, how many Israelites were there? There were 603,550 men of military age. So chances are they're walking around with between two and two and a half million people in the wilderness. That's like the city of Houston, Texas moving around in the desert. And so feeding them and watering them enough for them and their livestock, that's a big deal. It's to remind them. Name another one. Trumpets. What was trumpets about? Harvest. Why is that a memorial? What does it, because God, remember, when these people moved into the promised land, what did God tell them? You're going to be taking over orchards you didn't plant. You're going to be taking over vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to be moving into homes that you didn't build. You need to remember why you have these things because I have provided them for you. And so again, when you look at all of those, all of those are engendered. They're meant to remind them. And it doesn't stop at those. When they crossed the Jordan River, what, would God, what did God tell them to do? Go back in the river, get 12 rocks, one for each tribe. You bring the rocks up onto the shore, you build a monument there so that in days to come, when your children ask, what do these rocks mean? You can tell them. And again, throughout the Bible, you find that um, people forget. 
Joseph rescued Egypt. Joseph made Pharaoh the richest man around. But at, there came a time when there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And then all of a sudden the children of Israel end up in captivity. There came a day when the people, um, jo uh, Joshua died, and the elders that had served with Joshua died. And after they're dead, what happened? The people forgot and immediately fall into immorality and sin. So people are forgetful. This idea of faith looking back, that is something that is actually very, very important. Now, faith leads to love. And what is love in this aspect when, when you talk about love looking outward to others? What's the idea of that? Come on now, this isn't rocket science. Pardon me? Okay, well, and what is, so showing God's love, and what does that look like? It's service. It is focused on others, even at, their exp at our expense, right? That's the same thing as for Jesus. Jesus hung on a cross, and what were the vast, vast majority of people doing while he's hanging on the cross? They're mocking him. Right, so the idea of offering to pray for somebody, even if they don't believe that, uh, in fact, I, I was reading a, an article. I didn't read the whole article. I saw parts of it. Um, from Israel, my glory, talking about a Jewish fella who doesn't believe that God exists, but he prays to him anyway. And why? It's because I'm a fictionalist. I've never even heard of that. A fictionalist is somebody who doesn't believe in it, but does it anyway because it makes them feel better. So I guess he's covering his bases. So he thinks. So this idea of faith and love, when you have, when you look back and you realize how the fidelity of God and the trustworthiness of God, then that builds hope for the future. But when you look at the text, what do we find? In verse 5, uh, in verse 4, it talks about faith in Christ Jesus, the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you. Now, because of is the idea of on account of. So how is Paul viewing faith and love? What's faith and love's uh, relationship to hope? Hope is the well, it's the spring that feeds faith and love. So what you have here, y'all have heard of a vicious cycle, right? In a vicious cycle, which direction are things heading? They're heading down, and it's in a spiral, right? Because this feeds this, it feeds this, which then drives this, and you just have this swirly that's going down. This is the opposite. This is a virtuous cycle because you have faith and you have love that are building hope, and hope in turn turns around and feeds the faith and feeds the love, and you have an upward spiral here. They feed off of each other. And that's the way that God has designed it. And so here you have, you have hope that's laid up for you. This idea of laid up, is, it's a financial term. It's like having a savings account. This is money that's been set aside. It's been put aside. It's protected, and it's something for the future. And so that's the idea here of this hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Now, interesting here, the word of truth. Now, you'll find that very phrase, the word of truth, 
You're going to find it in Ephesians 1.13. You'll find it in 2 Timothy 2.15, James 1.18. And frankly, Jesus in John 17.17, 17, what does he say? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, right? Now, why would Paul be harping on this idea of God's word being truth? Why is that important here? Think context. Why is Paul writing this letter? Because there's trouble in Colossae. And there are people coming in who are saying, Jesus isn't enough. God's word isn't enough. You've got to have the insider knowledge. You've got to have, you know, the secret society kind of thing. You know, uh, you've got the special handshake and you've got all this other weird and funky stuff. You've got, you know, look, you have to have visions. You have to have some type of special understanding. Now, listen, Paul is going to talk about in this book, are there, have there been mysteries relative to the gospel? Yes. What's a mystery, biblically speaking? What's a mystery? Okay, so it has not been previously revealed, but is now being manifested. So this is something that has either been obscured, it's been hidden, it's not been discussed, God hasn't talked about that yet, but now is being revealed, okay? We're going to run into one of those here in Colossians. The mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so the idea here is, There are things that God is revealing new as the New Testament is being revealed and written. There are some new things that you wouldn't know from the Old Testament with the understanding that people had in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? There are some things that are newly revealed, but they're consistent. So when you have someone who talks about, you know what, I have a further revelation from God. How do you evaluate that? What do you do with it? I'm sorry? What do you do with it? What did these people do with it? You go to the Word and you check it out. Is it consistent? Now, if somebody comes to you today saying, hey, listen, I have a special revelation from God, no, you don't, okay? You don't, but keep in mind, for these folks, that was still going on, and so what was, in fact, what did Paul, why did Paul commend those at Berea? Yeah, they listened to what was being said, but they went back and checked it out with the scripture that they had. And by the way, what scripture did they have? The Old Testament. And so, again, it's this idea of God's word is consistent. It doesn't vary. You don't have it to where it says this is okay, but it's not okay. This is sin. Uh, It's consistent as it goes through. And so they previously heard in the word of truth. Now, how did the gospel get to Colossae? Did it just spring up there on its own? Somebody had to take it there. Now, oftentimes it was Paul. He would show up, and what was Paul's habit? He'd go to the synagogue, and he would reason there until they threw him out, and then he would go to the Gentiles. But every place from place to place, he would go to the synagogue first to preach it to the Jews first, and when they turned away, boom, now he's over to the Gentiles. Epaphras carried it there, and he helped to water it there as well. But the idea is there, somebody carried it. The gospel which has come to you. 
Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So what's the picture here of the gospel? As the idea of bearing fruit. And the idea, the other word here that's probably better for increasing is growing. So here you've got this tree. And the tree is growing. And as it's growing, it's producing more and more fruit, which then is also, you know, getting larger and larger. It's spawning other trees. And so here you have the gospel spreading. And it's a little bit of hyperbole here when Paul says it's gone through the whole world. Now, at that point, probably not through the whole world literally, almost certainly not. But the idea is, is that it was moving, it was spreading, it was um, taking effect throughout the nations, constantly bearing fruit and growing, even it has been even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the idea here is, is that what is happening in Colossae has, is happening in Ephesus, it's happening in Philippi, it's happening in Thessalonica, it's happening in Berea, it's happening in Rome, it's happening in Athens, it's happening in all these places that's in, in the known world right there in that region. It's everywhere. And just as it is as you are growing, because we're going to find that later, that he's going to use these same terms talking about the Colossians themselves. And the idea here is that just as it's having this effect on you, it's also having this effect on other people in other cities, in other ethnic areas, in other countries. And there's a tie here. Since the day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth. Now, why is understanding important? Is it enough to simply hear? Oh, thank you. I'm starting to get nervous. Everybody, I think, is still asleep. No, it's not enough to just hear. You hear it, okay. What do you do with it? If you reject it, is there any benefit to you that you heard the message? What's it going to serve you in the day of judgment? That word that you heard is going to condemn you. You'd heard the truth. You rejected the truth. And so the idea here is that the, uh, the understanding is, is that there is, I understand what it is that God is after, and I am responding in an appropriate way to him and to his word. That's the idea here. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, boy, I tell you what, if I was Epaphras, that's a pretty good compliment from the Apostle Paul. Beloved, this idea of fellow bondservant, it's one word uh, in Greek, and it's, it's basically fellow slave is the idea here. So he's a slave who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Now that word for servant, that's the word from which we get deacon. And so here you have, this isn't compulsory service. This is enthusiastic service that is voluntary. It's like the slave who uh, didn't want to be turned away from the master and so went to the, to the doorpost and had the awl put through his ear so that he would be a servant for life. That's the idea here. That's, that's the picture. And so Epaphras is one who is fully dedicated to the gospel. And the idea of he's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf meaning that he's one of Paul's guys who he can send out so that Paul can then be what? Paul can be in more than one place at the same time. 
because he's got a guy who knows the gospel, who is able to communicate the gospel and preach and teach the gospel, who is able to disciple those who become new believers so that they can grow in sanctification. And therefore, again, it's multiplying his ministry. In verse 8, and he's also informed us of your love in the Spirit. And so here again, he's, hey, this is what's going on in Colossae. You've got people who are being saved. You've got people who are being discipled. They're being sanctified. The church is growing. There's a lot of good things that are going on in Colossae. Questions at this point? So the idea here, Paul is, he's, he's, setting, he's setting the stage, all right? And he's setting the stage for this prayer, which is then going to springboard into the rest of the book. If you want to pray for somebody, pray for them like this. Here's a good way. If you want to learn how to pray, you learn how to pray like this. Verse 9. For this reason, and again, the reason being they're growing and they're uh, bearing fruit and they have love for the others. They've got faith. They've got love. They've got hope. So because of these things, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you so again, this is persistent. Do you have any idea how many churches Paul was praying for? I don't. But there was a bunch of them. And you know, it's interesting, when you look in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about all of the things that he has suffered for the name of Christ, being beaten, being stoned, being whipped, being shipwrecked, all of this, you know, He's, he's being chased by bad guys everywhere. And into that, how does he end up? And beside all this, there's the daily concern for the churches. It never stops. There's never a break. It is constant. And th those churches, they are all over the spectrum. You've got churches like the one at Corinth where they've got just about anything that can be wrong is. And then you've got churches over here where, you know, there's just every church, they've all got their little flavors as to things that are going on. And Paul is praying for all of them. And he's praying for them specifically for their situation. He's got to have a daily planner that's about this thick for being able to go through and remember all this stuff. So since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And, okay, Paul, what are you praying for? Here we go. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now again... You, you look at that, why that? Specifically. Okay, foundation. Right, and so th that's getting into the wisdom and, and the understanding, knowing how to apply the, the principles of God's word. Again, what's the problem in Colossae? False doctrine, false teaching. Gunner? Exactly. Okay, they need help staying on track. So, the idea here again being, if you're, if you're needing to confront false teaching, what's the best way to confront false teaching? Know the truth. Exactly. Be steeped in the truth. 
so that when someone comes up and says something that is contrary to that truth, you recognize it immediately so you don't get sucked away. One of the things that people do, they'll use Christian vocabulary, but they're not using the Christian dictionary. They come up with new definitions for these words so that you hear these things and you go, well, gee whiz, that sounds orthodox until you get down into the weeds and find out what exactly they mean when they use that word. I guarantee you, if you talk about grace to someone who is Roman Catholic or someone who is Mormon, they're going to have vastly different definitions as to what that grace is. God graciously makes it to where I can do what I need to do to be saved. And so again, um, know the truth. Focus on the truth. And not just to puff up your head. You know, since you have all kinds of, you know, different doctrines that you can quote and all kinds of Bible trivia and everything. Sam? Sam's comment is that Paul did not ask God to remove the false teachers. They're going to be there. They're in our culture today. They're inescapable. And so Paul doesn't even, frankly, Paul doesn't waste time with that. What does he do? Listen, they're here. This is how you combat them. This is how you know the truth so that you will be able to stand against lies. Here's how you're going to be able to make it to where you don't get suckered, where you don't get sandbagged, where you don't get sucked in. Somebody said earlier, you don't get distracted to where you end up off, you end up off course. The way that you avoid that is that you know the truth, you study the truth, and you do the truth. So again, it's not just knowledge. It's not just knowledge of his will. It's the idea of, now, what do we do with it? Why study God's word and rightly divide it to understand what it says? Why do that? Is that the end? of the exercise no what's it supposed to lead to okay there's growing in knowledge and truth I'm looking for one word obey John 336 he who has the son has life but he who does not what Obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There are multiple places where the idea of belief and obedience are linked. Biblical belief always, always, cap, bold, underline, italicize, biblical belief always results in obedience. They are inseparably linked. They're two halves of, that, of the same coin. So the idea that somehow someone can believe but not obey, that is not biblical. That's why there's such an issue with somebody saying that because I have prayed a prayer or I had some type of a uh, of an emotional or religious experience relative to the gospel and somehow that in and of itself is sufficient for the rest of my life 
And there's no evidence of sanctification. There's no evidence of a transformed life. There's no evidence of change. That person is what? They're deceived. They're deceived. They've been suckered. And there's a lot of people who fall into that boat. That's why you have Jesus saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? And I'm going to say what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They didn't practice righteousness. They practiced lawlessness. And that is the evidence of an unredeemed heart. So again, it doesn't matter. And there are a lot of sincere people who sincerely believe that they're redeemed and they are deceived because they've bought into assorted lies. So I want you, I'm asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10, so that... There's the purpose phrase. Here's why I'm asking this for you. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, where have we heard language like that? Recently preached. Ephesians, right? Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so the idea here is, again, that is the natural expected consequence with, with being having knowledge of the God's will and wisdom and understanding. That's the idea of how to apply it. How, it's the how-tos. You're going to walk, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And so the idea here is that it is a consistent life. It's a consistent life where the, there is, all of the cupboards are open. There's no locked doors. You know what, God, you can have all of this, but you can't have this over here. That's the idea here. Now, how are you going to accomplish pleasing him in all aspects, all respects? There's four participles here, and when you run into a participle, a participle is how you do something. So there's going to be the command, and then the participles are going to be, how do we do this? And there's four of them. The first one, bearing fruit in every good work. So, one of the evidences of walking in a manner worthy of our calling, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects, is we're bearing fruit. Remember the, the, the sower in the soils? You have the good soil, and it bore the, that plant bore fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. So the idea here is that there is evidence of growth. There is evidence of change. There is evidence of being made more into the likeness of Christ. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, where did we hear bearing fruit and increasing, bearing fruit and growing? That's back over here, back in verse 6, because, again, that is the effect of the gospel when it reaches people, when it reaches good soil. That's the results. And so, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, it doesn't show as a participle in English. Strengthened with all power. This is actually powering in all power. It's the same word. They're, 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 it's just different forms of the same word. So the idea here is being strengthened, uh, developing your spiritual muscles, and that is according to his glorious might. Now, might is a different word, kratos, than dunamis. The idea with, with kratos is that is used usually, almost always, of God and God's might. Now, is God able to accomplish what he puts his arm to? 
oh yeah. And so again, that here's that idea of the partnership between God and the believer, because uh, in Philippians, we just went through this a few weeks ago, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to work and to will of his good pleasure. And so this idea again is that God is superintending this and you are developing spiritual strength, spiritual maturity. Why? For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Now, again, two different words for the same type of concept. Steadfastness is hupomone, that's the backpacking word. So it's you're keeping your shoulder under and you're keeping one foot moving and, and you're staying under the load. You're keeping on moving and it's, it's got the idea of what? Opposition. You're having to move because there's, there, you know, you're, you're moving into the wind. You're swimming upstream. You're having, to, you're having to overcome resistance. That's the idea of steadfastness. You'll also see that translated endurance. Same word. And patience. Now, we're not really scoring points for the kingdom if we're keeping the shoulder under the load and we're, you know, moving and we're moving up against um, opposition if we do it with a retaliatory, reviling attitude. That doesn't accomplish anything. That kills the message. So that's why he puts in this other term, patience. The other way that you see that one rendered is long-suffering. Here's the idea. You're staying under the load and you're moving forward in spite of opposition, but you do it with a sweet disposition. You do it cheerfully. You don't do it with the, the face. You know, I'm so full of the joy of the Lord. Really? Really? And so again, that, so do you see how he's, how he's, he's getting this? Look, expect that you're going to have opposition. That's, and you got to, and you got to keep moving forward. But you got to do it with the right attitude. You can't, uh, the idea of, uh, the opposite of, of patience and long-suffering, uh, revenge. Reviling in return when you are reviled. So when you're spoken evil of, yeah, well, your mom wears combat boots. All right? It's that idea of, of you know, of the, of, the, of the pithy comeback. No, no, no. That's not here. And so again, that's why you need spiritual muscles. You need those to be able to withstand the temptation to snap off somebody's head when they say something that, yeah, maybe they ought not to have said it. But we need to be gracious. We need to have the responsibility for that. And the fourth, joyously giving thanks. Now, you would think that he could just say joyously doing this or giving thanks in doing this. Why does he combine them? You can fake thankfulness. Okay, hard to fake. Okay, Andrew.
Well, now, those are t that's two separate questions, all right? Is it and should it be? Two separate questions, right? Should it be? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. You should have, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the idea of should we be grateful regardless of circumstance? Absolutely. Should we be joyous? Should we be joyful regardless of circumstance? Absolutely. What is joy? Dave defined it at the beginning of Philippians. Anybody remember what the definition was? I realize that's been a couple of months ago now. Actually, more than a couple. What's joy? Three words. Gladness in God. Joy is a choice. Joy is also a fruit of the Spirit. And so it's something that as you consider circumstances, as God sees them, as you consider them, again, with the idea, do you see how hope comes into play here? When you encounter difficulty, how does hope impact your circumstances? How should it? Okay, so God is in it. He's going to work. He's going to accomplish something good in it because he has said so. That's in his word. You can go and you can go to chapter and verse. You can go to Romans 8. You can go to Ephesians 1. There are, there's places where you can go and you can read it in black and white where God says, I am going to do this. Okay, and we remember, so again, the hope is looking forward. The faith is looking back and remembering, boom, 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 boom. Next week, uh, look, it is, and please, please, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is not enough, that the Bible is not enough. But can I tell you something? Your children should know things that have happened in your life where God demonstrated his faithfulness. Your kids should know that. They should be able to tell those stories. They should be able to tell those stories from their grandparents if their grandparents were in the faith. Yes, the Bible is enough for me to trust that God is faithful and he is faithful to his word that he doesn't lie, that what he says is going to come to pass in the way that he says. I can also tell you that I can look back in my own life and see where time and time and time again that has held out just as true as he did for the people in Hebrews 11. Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie's comment is we need to make memorials, we need to write things down, we need to be able to remember them so that it helps us in times of need. Please come next Sunday. We're going to talk about that in particular in the main service. And so the idea here is, again, this is, these are all of these things. Do you see how these are woven together so that you have... Uh, you have a complete picture. You have a completed position so that you're not threatened by someone coming in and trying to shift you offline. All of these things fit together and God has made them to fit together. And why are we joyously giving thanks to the Father? 
specifically? Here's a good reason. Because he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We are not fit. And we would never be fit. We would never be able to self-certify. We would never be able to even approach God's bar to clear. It's like trying to broad jump across the Grand Canyon. Doesn't matter if you get out six feet, 10 feet, 30 feet. It's a mile across. You're not going to do it. You can't. We can't. No one has ever been able to. But God has qualified us. God has made us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints. And how did he do it? That's verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were darkness. We have been made light. And light has no function. It has no compatibility with darkness. And so we have been rescued. I love that word. Could we get out on our own? No. We got pulled out. Over the years when I was in the fire department, uh, the rig that I worked on, we went to auto accidents when people were pinned. A person who's pinned in a car cannot get out. They cannot get out on their own. Unless they were going to do something. What was that movie where the guy got pinned in a rock and cut off his own arm? If you're pinned, that's what it's going to take. And so what would we do? Well, we've got all kinds of tools, power tools, <laughs> to where we can come in and we can make stuff that'll do stuff. You apply enough force. That's the idea. God rescued us. God brought in the jaws, and he got us out from where we were trapped, from where we were pinned. But he didn't just take us out and leave us sitting on the curb outside the car. He then took us and transferred us into his kingdom. So when you look at the idea here of domain, that's the idea of a kingdom. He's taken us from the kingdom of the devil and he has put us into his kingdom. The kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now how did we get that? How did we get redemption? How did we get forgiveness? Did God just make it up? What was required? Yeah, Jesus died. Jesus suffered. He atoned for my sin, for your sin. And he also satisfied because he endured the wrath of God that you deserved, that I deserved. That's been satisfied. It's been paid. Because the debt is paid, then what am I free from? He's canceled out the certificate of debts that was hostile to us because he's paid it. So when I sin, there's a break in fellowship. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm grieving the Holy Spirit because of what I've done, but I am not going to suffer the wrath of God that that sin would call for. Why? Why not? Because it's already satisfied. So God cannot love me any more in the future than he does at this moment. 
So as Paul is praying these things, who is he elevating? God and Christ, they're elevated. Everything that we have is from them. Everything good that we have is from them. Everything good that we can have is from them. And so now he's set the stage for what is probably one of the most incredible paragraphs in Scripture. But we're going to deal with that next week. How appropriate. It wasn't planned this way. But how appropriate that we would have this today in the hymn to Christ right after Thanksgiving. Questions to this point. Okay, now you all need to start taking some no-dos or something before class, all right? Come on, some of these things we ought to be jumping on. We ought to be coming out of our skins talking about this stuff. David. That's going to be the end result. And, and again, worship is something, right? So worship, David's comment was is that obedience is the, is the step that's going to lead to worship. And the idea being that what is, what is worship? What is it? Well put, long enough that I can't repeat all of it. Let me, let, let me give you a down and dirty for worship. For worship. Just think worth-ship. That's where the word comes from. You're ascribing value. Now, the things that David was talking about, your, your manner of living, your conduct, the way you think, the way you, you act, your communication, your ongoing communication with God, how you're praying to him, you're reading his word, and you're having you know, this back and forth dialogue. The primary way that we demonstrate our assessment of God's value is by obedience, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? We all have this with our kids, right? I can, you know, the, the one that hurts is that I can remember doing this when I was young. On one hand, I'm telling my parents I love you while I am over here doing exactly the opposite of what they wanted me to do. When my kids do that, I look at that and I go, you know, you're saying one thing, but you're doing something entirely different, right? The idea of worship is that you're living in such a way that you have the constant communication and I am below and God is above and I am humbling myself to him. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if I want to have grace, I better be humble. And I cannot be humble and demand my own way when God says I should do something and I say anything but that, right? Jo God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah goes 180 degrees the other way. That doesn't compute when you talk about worship, okay? And so again, it's about you, you're growing in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus, and that is leading to obedience and which is furthering your faith, it's furthering your love, it's furthering your hope. And so again, you've got that virtuous cycle going to where all those things, your faith is clicking on all cylinders. Your sanctification is clicking on all cylinders. Gunner. Dunamis actually is the, is the normal word for power, kratos is the one that, that applies specifically to God. Yep. 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 
Gunner's point is dunamis is the same is the same root for dynamite and dynamo, and that is absolutely correct. Power. Right, but it's the it does it does have some similarity in idea. As far as being power, energy. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness and you have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the atonement. You're the propitiation for our sin. You've satisfied the wrath of God for all of the evil that I have done that we have done. There's no way we could have done that on our own and there's no way we could ever repay you. And so what can we do but live for you and to ascribe the value and the praise and the honor that you are so due. And so, Father, help us to, to be constantly mindful, to be persistently mindful of what you have done, how you have demonstrated your love for us. You loved us first. You're, you're the initiator. Everything that is good is from you. We're going to hear in the main service here shortly of the plagues that you brought on Egypt to judge them, to rescue your people from slavery. We too have been bought from slavery. We were redeemed. We were redeemed with a price. And it was a precious price. And so, Lord, help us to be about your business. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling that we wouldn't be satisfied with just knowing facts. But that we would live, that we would put shoe leather to our faith. That people would be able to look and see that you've been among us because we're your people and we act like your people and we look like you. Help us to be faithful in that. Help us to worship you aright this morning. In Christ's name, amen.